May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 40. And as Matthias has said, this is the fourth in a series of four sermons from uh, Genesis. But I want to introduce it with a subject that maybe some of you are not really familiar with. If I was preaching in a North American church, or maybe Japan, I wouldn't have any problem with using an illustration from baseball. But, but look around. But look around. We are an international, multicultural, multi-ethnic community. It just wouldn't do to talk about baseball. But I am going to talk about a very, very famous baseball player, a man named Yogi Berra. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk at all, not a word about baseball. Not a word. I won't talk about his contribution to the sport of baseball. Instead, I want to talk about Yogi Berra's amazing contribution to the richness of the English language. Yogi Berra was an all-star, world champion, hall of fame twister of the English language and English sentences. And he wasn't making jokes. He was really, really serious. I'm going to give you a few examples of the things that Yogi Berra came up with. Here's one. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. What about the spoon and the knife? (laughs) Or here's another one. Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. Think about it. Or here's one that I... Here's one that is a favorite of mine. One time Yogi was asked by a friend, hey, let's, let's go to a, a local uh, popular restaurant. And Yogi said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Okay. Uh, here's another one. And it's getting close to the subject of today's sermon. The future ain't what it used to be. Past, present, and future all kind of wrapped up. The past ain't what it used to be. And the title of my sermon I have taken from Yogi Berra. It's like deja vu all over again. Deja vu all over again. And... uh, I I hope you're familiar with the expression deja vu. You know, it's that weird uh, sensation that you get sometimes, very briefly, like what you are experiencing at this moment is something that happened in the past. It's kind of like the past gets mixed up with the present. And of course, Yogi Berra says it's like deja vu all over again. Well, that's the whole point of deja vu as such. 
the expression, of course, is French, and it means something like already seen. Uh, researchers uh, guess that uh, maybe 70 to 80 percent of healthy adults have experienced déjà vu. So I'm going to take it that at least half of you know what I'm talking about. You have had a déjà vu experience at least once in your life. Researchers and Delft is a city of researchers, so you know what researchers are like. Researchers have come up with several very complicated theories of what causes this weird sensation of déjà vu. And you know what that means? Nobody knows for sure what causes déjà vu. Well, God knows what causes it, but he's not telling us what causes déjà vu. But déjà vu is getting then close to the subject of today's message because there's the element of memory and remembrance, repetitions, and timing. And the main character of today's message, Joseph, had several years in which he seemed to be experiencing this sort of deja vu experience all over and over again. Yogi Berra also said something else. He said, if you don't know where you are going, you might wind up someplace else. And I wouldn't want any of us to to wind up someplace else, so I want to talk a little bit about where we have been in this series and where we are going, going today. And the book of Genesis is the beginning of God's plan for mankind. From the very beginning, his plan was that human beings would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have godly dominion over it. And I want to stress that godly dominion over the earth. That was his perfect plan. But then like all plans, it gets complicated. When sin entered into the world, the plan got complicated. God didn't abandon the plan, but it got complicated some. And so still, after the complication, God wanted to raise up people who would be bearers of the divine image, reflecting, resembling, and representing their heavenly Father here on earth. Ultimately, that plan included bringing a perfect one, an anointed one, the Messiah, the one we call Christ, who would make an end to sin once and for all. And so Genesis, the book of Genesis, is that perfect plan phase one. And there are several other uh, phases to the plan, but, but Genesis is the beginning of that plan. And in Genesis, there are ten building blocks of that first phase. And we're in the tenth building block of that, of that plan, uh, which is the story of Jacob's sons. It's from this family 
that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, was eventually going to descend. But there's a problem. This family is a pack of liars, cheats, murderers, greedy scoundrels, and wretches. <laughs> it's quite a family here. And, and, and yet, in Genesis, we see how God is the one who, who mends, who molds, and makes people to be that, those divine image bearers representing him. So God, in his mercy and grace, rolled up his sleeves, that is, he got to work, with creating this people who would be his divine image bearers. So let me summarize the first three episodes of this uh, series. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I don't want you to, as Yogi Berra said, wind up someplace else. In episode one, chapter 37, we find Joseph, a 17-year-old guy who is 11th in line to be the firstborn or to get the inheritance and the blessing of the firstborn. In other words, the chief of the clan. So there were ten brothers ahead of him before he would be, perhaps, chief of the clan. But he gets moved to the head of the line because he is the favorite of his father, Jacob. The material evidence of this favoritism was a long sleeve tunic that his father made for him, a, a material symbol that he was the one that was going to, to get the blessing. The verbal evidence was Joseph had two dreams that seemed to confirm that he was the one that was going to get the blessing. He was the one that was going to, to be the chief of the, of the clan. So anyway, his, because of that, his brothers hate him. They plot to kill him. They grab him. They strip him of this tunic and they throw him into a pit. And they had plotted to kill him, but an older brother named Judah, kind of a greedy scoundrel, said, uh, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery and make some money from him. And as it turned out, Joseph was sold into slavery and he goes down into Egypt. Then his brothers, they take that tunic, they rip it, they stain it with the blood of a goat, and they deceive their father into thinking that a wild animal had, had killed Joseph. Episode 2 in chapter 38. This greedy scoundrel, Judah, evidently he had had enough of his father, Jacob, decides he's probably going to start his own clan. He's not ever going to be the chief of the clan. So he goes down from his brothers to start his own clan. And he teams up with a guy named Hirah the Adulamite. <clears throat> and there he meets a Canaanite gal and he hooks up with her. And in rapid succession, three sons are born. Several years later, the firstborn of those sons gets married. But in rapid succession, he dies, and then the second one dies. And in the ancient Near East, there was a custom that 
that a brother would marry than the widow of an older brother who died without bearing children. And Judas says, no way. This woman, two of my sons are, are dead. I'm not going to give her the third one. He doesn't say it quite that way, but he, he shuffles the widow, his daughter-in-law, off. Then, as it turns out, this Canaanite consort, gal that uh, he had hooked up with, she dies. And right after the funeral, Judah and his buddy Hira decide that, uh, that they're going to go to one of these big outdoor events, a sheep shearing event. And sheep shearing events had the reputation, well, if you wanted some action, that's where you could get some action. And after the death of his uh, consort, so to speak, Judah seemed to be longing for some comfort. And he sees what he thinks is a prostitute along the road, which is actually his daughter-in-law in disguise on purpose, and Judah propositions her, there's a meeting in the road, so to speak, and there is a conception. A conception, as it turns out, of twins. But Judah was blind to what he had done and what he had been doing and what his life had been like. But then Judah had uh, an identity crisis He's forced to identify the pledge that he gave to this woman he thought was a prostitute, and he recognizes it as his own from his daughter-in-law. And then, more significantly, he recognizes, he identifies the guilt in his heart. He had been blind to his wretchedness, but now he saw it and he was changed. And if we were to go on in the whole story of Genesis, we would see that Judah was flipped around 180 degrees. Judah was a changed man after this experience. And then, episode 3, Genesis 39. By this time, uh, Joseph is down in Egypt. He's a slave in the house of a government big shot named Potiphar. By this time, Joseph is a mature young man. He's no longer a 17-year-old. He's a mature young man, and he's separated from his family, but he is not separated from his God. God was with him. Emphatically, God was with him. So emphatically that, that, that everything that Joseph touched, everything that was placed in his hand, succeeded. And Potiphar, this big government fellow, he sees that, and so he places his entire personal affairs in the hand of Joseph, except for for Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar's. He's not to touch Mrs. Potiphar, but Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, she sees Joseph. And he's good-looking, he's masculine, he's virile, a 20-something-year-old guy who is always around the house because that's where he was working. She tries to get him in bed with her, but he refuses. 
and he actually basically accuses her of great wickedness, suggesting that, that, uh, that, that he should sin against his God. So he refuses her. He accuses her. But she stalks him day after day after day. Finally, one day, she just simply grabs him by his, his clothes, ripping them off. Joseph abandons this clothes and runs, flees outside the house. Now imagine, broad daylight, Joseph is standing out there with nothing on except the ancient Egyptian equivalent of Bjornborg underwear. His clothes are laying next to Mrs. Potiphar. And the whole household knows something has happened. In fact, the whole neighborhood probably knew something's gone on at the Potiphar's house. So what happens? Potiphar comes home, finds this, and Mrs. Potiphar spews a load of lies about what took place. And of course, he burns with anger. He takes Joseph and he, and he puts him into the king's jailhouse. But the Lord was still with Joseph in the jailhouse. Once again, he was successful. Everything that was put in his hands succeeded. And that brings us to today's episode. Yet I want to make one thing very, very clear. God does not condone sin. The fact that, that, that these sins are described in so much detail is not because God approves of it. Not that God lo- overlooks it. God hates sin with a passion. He hates it. That's why there is this perfect plan to send the perfect one, the anointed one, the Messiah, to take care of sin once and for all. But the Bible, our Bible, is brutally honest about sin. Brutally honest about it. Okay, so now we come to episode 4 and uh, in chapter 40. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. It says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the jailhouse where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And then one night, they both dreamed a dream, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the jailhouse, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Okay. The location, the setting, back in the jailhouse. The king's jailhouse. 
And notice how many times the, the expression king of Egypt or Pharaoh is mentioned here in this passage. If we were to look at the entire chapter, we would find that three times it's referring to king of Egypt, same person that was Pharaoh, and 12 times Pharaoh is mentioned. So 15 times in this chapter, the king of Egypt or Pharaoh himself, as he was known, uh, is mentioned. And uh, one scholar pastor and uh, really good Bible teacher, a man named Vadi Balkam, had a very, very interesting observation about this. He said these references to, uh, to Pharaoh and to the king are like breadcrumbs that are scattered from the beginning of chapter 40 to the end of it. Why? Because in chapter 41, Pharaoh himself is going to be one of the major characters. And so, so we are to follow these little breadcrumbs across chapter 40 and see this is where it is going. We won't get to chapter 41 today, but uh, you can see where the story is, is going. And Joseph, the Lord was still with him. He was still successful. And he was still trusted. We talked about trust and obviously Joseph was trusted because they put these two officials into the jailhouse and they said, Joseph, take care of them. They're government officials. Take care of them. The irony in, in that he's in jail and he's taking care of these government uh, officials. And once again, dreams. In chapter 37, there were the two dreams, and Joseph thought that those dreams meant that he was going to be the ruler of the clan, but he ends up in Egypt instead. And so once again, there are two dreams. And when this happens, Joseph is a man of 28 years old. The text here doesn't say it, but if you go into chapter 41, you find out that a full two years later after this, Joseph was 30 years old. So he was 28. And I don't know your ages, but uh, maybe some of you are yet to be 28. And if so, you might want to think about uh, where do I want to be? What do I want to do uh, when I'm 28? Certainly you don't want to be in jail. I am confident of that. Uh, but where do you want to be? Do you want to be finished with your PhD? Do you want to have that great job that you've always desired? Maybe you want to go back home and be close to your family by the time you're 28. If you're north of 28, and as significantly north of 28 as I am, you look back at, at 28 and you might wonder, oh, that's what I wanted to do when I was 28. Where was I when I was 28? I got to thinking about it. I know that the summer that I turned 28 was the first time I heard the good news about Jesus Christ. I was 28 that summer, and I heard that Jesus had died for my sins. 
So 28 was, was a real important year in my life. And I have to say that what was, were my goals and ambitions then at 28 and what they became after I came to the Lord are somewhat different things. They've, they've changed. But for Joseph, this is 11 years after he had had those two dreams where he thought he was going to be the leader of the clan. And he's in prison. He's in jail. And I think at this point, Joseph realizes that, it, that his interpretation, he had forced his own interpretation on those two dreams that he had. Notice it, it says, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? I think he had learned that. He had learned it must have stung him a little bit that his two dreams that he had had when he was 17 never seemed to come true. And here now he's being confronted with two more dreams, the dreams of others. Yogi Berra one time mixed up math and he told people to pair up in threes. Pair up in threes. Well, I'm going to twist that even further to help you remember what is going on here. We're going to three up in pairs. Okay? Three up in pairs. And I'm, I'm going to read uh, uh, the next verses from verse 9 through 15. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to remember me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house, for I was stolen, indeed stolen, out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. I say three up in pairs because in chapter 37 you have two pairs of dreams. In chapter, 30, not, uh, 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 chapter 40 you have two dreams, a pair of dreams. And then in chapter 41, Pharaoh will have two dreams. So there's kind of pairs of dreams in threes. But notice, notice uh, here in this first dr- uh, dream, there's three branches, and, and each branch buds. Then the branches blossom, and then the branches bear bunches of ripe grapes. So there's three aspects of, of, the, of the three branches. 
And then there's the three actions where, where, where the man took the grapes, he presses them into the cup, and he hands the cup to Pharaoh. This is, this is a beautiful, beautiful way of, of seeing that, that number three playing out uh, in, uh, in the story. And then, of course, lift up the head, which usually means to promote with favor. And that's what Joseph says. That's the interpretation he has from God for that particular dream. But then we have evidence of a Joseph deja vu experience. Remember me when all is well with you, and please do me the kindness. This is that loving kindness. This is that deep, deep love and favor. Do this for me when it goes well with you. Remember me to Pharaoh. I'm innocent. I need to be released from this jail. And then he's very emphatic. He says, I was stolen, indeed stolen. Very emphatic. And you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, We learned earlier in the text that he was sold into slavery. He wasn't kidnapped. Well, I'm not so sure about that. There are some who who think that, that Joseph is kind of shading the truth a little bit here. He doesn't want to admit to the cupbearer that his own brothers sold him into slavery. Well, I'm not sure that... I don't have time to go into it here. I'm not so sure that the brothers actually did share, sell him into slavery. I could explain that a little bit after, uh, after the service, perhaps. But at any rate, at any rate... He's reliving that experience from 11 years ago. I was stolen, yes indeed, stolen. And then there's the other hint that he was reliving what took place. He says says, uh, there that they have put me into this pit. He was actually in jail. But he uses the same word for that empty, dry cistern that his brothers threw him into. He was going through and reliving this experience. And maybe, and maybe he was beginning to think, God is, God is doing something here. He's suddenly given me these, these uh, uh, two dreams from, from the government officials, and this one is a favorable dream, and the man is going to be next to Pharaoh, and here's my chance. Here's my chance to get out of here, to get word to Pharaoh that I am innocent. So he thinks maybe perhaps he was having that, that opportunity. Memory and remembrance, and I'm going to use a fancy word, providence. The providence of God. God works through ordinary matters. Uh, the man I mentioned earlier, Vadi Baukam, talks quite a bit about providence in his writings, partly because, partly because he had seen so much providence, of, uh, so much God's working through the good and the bad in his own life. 
Uh, so he, he spoke much about, writes much about providence. And one of the things that he points out, he says, for Christians, he says, too often we use the word providence as a word that means Christian luck. We don't want to say luck. We say God's providence. And he says, providence is not luck. It's not necessarily the good that seems to happen. It's the good and the bad that God works together ultimately for the good. So we've heard the first pair, first half of this pair of dreams. Now we're going to hear the second one. Verse 16, when the baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand again. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Notice the baker, when he sees that the interpretation is good for the cupbearer, evidently the baker did not want to tell the contents of his dream. He was a little reluctant, but he thought, well, what's, what's to lose? It was good for the cupbearer, it's going to be good for the baker. Uh, so he must have hesitated some. And once again, the threes, three baskets and three days. And then lifting up, again, lifting up the head, but in this case, an ironic and grim meaning. As Joseph had said, interpretation belongs to God. And in this case, it was not a favorable one for the baker. Now, it says hanged, and we imagine with a rope. I mean, that's kind of our normal imagery to be hung by a rope from from a gallows or from uh, from a tree, but the way it's the way it's worded and also taken from ancient Near East practices, some some commentators say it was probably much more that he was impaled. Yes, he was hanged, but impaled on a stake on a tree. What a frightening image. A frightening image. Pharaoh throws this big birthday barbecue bash and it's the baker that gets skewered and eaten. Likely by vultures. And this, I think, is this horribleness of it, 
I think is something of the context in which Joseph is forgotten. You know, sometimes we willfully forget things, or we can willfully forget things. Uh, and sometimes recollection just simply fails. Uh, let me give an example, but first I want to give a little bit of background. My wife Annette, before we had met, years before we had met and married, worked for uh, an organization called World Relief, a Christian relief organization. She was the office secretary for a man named Martin. And Martin was born in the, United, or in the Netherlands, and he was part Jewish and part Gentile. And he grew up as a young boy in the Netherlands in the Second World War. Can you imagine that? And he survived. And as a young boy then, as a young boy after the war, he saw the tragedy of war and the human element of, of that. He must have as a young, young boy. I don't know how old he was when the war was over, but he had to have known of the tragedy, the human tragedy of, of war. Well, after the war, he emigrated to Canada and then he met the young lady next door. And that young lady next door introduced him to Jesus Christ. Well, Martin fell in love with the lady next door, Jean, and married her. And he was then captivated by the love of Christ. And he became a committed Christian. And what Martin had witnessed as a young boy certainly influenced his commitment later as a Christian to share the love of Christ with refugees from wars and natural disasters. And Martin and Jane went to work for World Relief, and that's where my wife Annette uh, met them, and I think was very much influenced them. Martin and Jean were marvelous, marvelous examples for Annette to follow, and I will always be grateful for what she saw in their lives, which was the love of Christ for those who were in need. Well, that comes to the example now. Uh, one day, Martin went on a trip, and, and my wife Annette gave him a letter and asked him if he would post that letter for her. Mail it. So Martin goes off on his trip, and I don't know if it was a one-day trip or a five-day trip. I don't, I don't know that part of the story, but Martin went off on the trip, and he came back, and the letter was still in his pocket. Still in his pocket. And, and Annette must have confronted him, maybe with some exasperation, uh, how could you forget to mail the letter? And Martin says, I didn't forget. I just didn't think of it at the right time. I didn't forget. I just didn't think of it at the right time. Remembrance and providence wrapped up there. You, you can see it. Sometimes, and, and in fact... That expression has become part of our family heritage. It's entered into 
our lexicon of expressions. <laughs> I have had to use it many times to diffuse what might otherwise be a little uncomfortable, I forget, I forgot kind of situation. I didn't forget. I just didn't think of it at the right time. That's almost as good as anything that Yogi Berra might have said. But Martin was right. He was not willful in forgetting. He was not negligent. He was not uncaring. He just didn't think of it at the right time. Well, remembrance at the right time is so, so important in this story. The cupbearer has been called immoral and ungrateful because he forgot Joseph. He didn't remember him. And I think that that could certainly be be seen in the in the story. You can't excuse what the what the cupbearer did. After all, the cupbearer had reason to believe that Joseph was was innocent. Really, his dream predictions or interpretations were true, what he heard from God. So how could the cupbearer forget? How could the cupbearer forget when, when his dream came true? Honestly, though, if, if I were in a situation like that, I think I might be tempted as well. Think about it. Here's these two government officials, and they are both wrapped up apparently in the same affair, business, and, and your, your co-worker gets skewered. Pharaoh is an austere man, and I, I can't help but think, and, and, and I probably would, possibly would react the same way. I don't think I want to remind Pharaoh of any of this. So I want to cut, I want to cut the, the cupbearer a little bit of slack, partly because in chapter 41, at God's right time, the cupbearer will remember Joseph and tell Pharaoh about Joseph at God's time. So how then does this fit into God's perfect plan? When Moses first recounted this story, the people of Israel were in slavery and had been for hundreds of years hundreds of years in slavery, and over that time they must have been thinking, has God forgotten us? Are we going to stay here all, you know, forever? Has he forgotten us? And, and Moses has written this story, given it to, to them, in order to say, you are still there in Egypt, but God has not forgotten you. In his good time, you will be taken up out of this pit of slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land. Trust it. Trust it. But what of Joseph? <clears throat> Joseph thought that he was going to get sprung from this jailhouse, and it doesn't happen. The, the text in chapter 42 says, two years of days, meaning two full years, but it, you can read it also as day after day after day after day for two years. Nothing seemed to happen. I can well imagine, I can well imagine at one time or another, Joseph crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
but the text is silent. Between the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41, nothing. We can only imagine what was going through Joseph's thinking in his heart. But I do know that many hundreds of years later, David, who was the king of Israel, a descendant of Judah, that same Judah that we heard of earlier, he wrote a psalm beginning, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that perfect one, that descendant of David himself, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, as he was, he was nailed to the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God had not abandoned Jesus to the pit, to the grave. God the Father himself raised him from the dead, and now Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus uttered those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was dying on the cross, he uttered them so that we would not have to. So that we would not have to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because because in dying on the cross, he paid that penalty. He paid it all. It is finished. God did not really abandon him completely. As I I say, God raised him from the dead. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It may sound like bad news, but it's really, really good news. It is the gospel truth. Jesus died for our sins. He died for my sins. So that I don't have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Today we hear this story in much the same way as the people of Israel originally heard it from Moses. Remembrance and providence, God's perfect timing. God's perfect plan continues. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's coming back again. So God's perfect plan isn't isn't at its final end. In the perceptive words of Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And it most definitely is not over. We today eagerly await the return of Jesus the Messiah who will once and for all put an end to sin and death. But for now... It ain't over till it's over. Do you believe it? Might this be the hour you first believed that Jesus suffered and died for your sins? Do you believe it? As far as this sermon is concerned, it is truly over, as well as this short sermon series that is well and true, truly over. And I want to thank you for your patience, as I have spoken for quite some time. And I want to thank you for your attentiveness. Most importantly, I thank God for his amazing grace. Amen.
Now let's hear the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace. Shalom.